This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, Dr. Craig is interviewed by Capturing Christianity on the alleged best atheist arguments. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Hello, I'm here today with Dr. William Lane Craig, and we're looking at some of the quote-unquote best atheist arguments that I found on YouTube. This was actually a video that I found from an, uh, I guess he's an atheist, he's a YouTuber, but the title of the video was literally Best Atheist Arguments, and it was basically a litany of clips, about 14 clips from Neil deGrasse Tyson, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and uh, some other pretty popular atheists. And so what I thought was, why don't we have Dr. William Lane Craig come on to Capturing Christianity and share some of his thoughts on this video. So before we get started, we have 14 clips queued up here, and we're going to get into them pretty quickly. But Dr. Craig, what, what are your overall thoughts of, of all of the clips that you saw? I did preview the clips, and I have to honestly say, Cameron, that if these are the best atheist arguments, then the atheist side is in real trouble because these are so superficial. In fact, in the lot, there isn't a single argument for atheism, and our viewers will see that if they watch carefully as you go through them. There isn't a single argument that is given to show that atheism is true. In fact, a lot of what these videos are is just comedy, or more accurately, ridicule. And that's a deliberate strategy adopted by the atheist side. People like Richard Dawkins have said explicitly, we should not engage in debates with people like William Craig, because that gives them credibility. Instead, what we should do is use ridicule and mockery of religious views. Uh, and that is a very deliberate strategy that you'll see adopted in several of these videos. Now, fortunately for the atheist side, we have to say these are not, in fact, the best atheist arguments. There are serious objections to theism, and there are substantial atheist thinkers today like Graham Oppie and J. Howard Sobel. And so if any of our viewers today are uh, sympathetic to the atheist point of view, they need to familiarize themselves with these more serious and weighty thinkers rather than with comedians and popularizers um, such as we see in this array of video clips. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I did want to say that as well before we get started, that these are not representative of all of the, the greatest uh, atheistic thinkers. You mentioned a few, but Paul Draper is another one I think worth mentioning. Yes. So if if you're an, an atheist or an agnostic or a skeptic and you're interested in, in what are the, the smartest atheists have to say about theism and, and philosophy of religion, those are the people to turn to. Don't don't turn to these people, and you're about to see why. All right, I've got the first clip queued up. We're going to watch it, listen, and then we'll uh, we'll get your response, and we'll just keep keep on moving. Like I said, we have 14 clips to go through in total, so here is number one. What is more likely, that the laws of nature have been suspended in your favor and in a way that you approve, or that you've made a mistake? And in each case, you must, and especially if you didn't see it yourself and you're hearing it from someone who says that they did. All right, so that's, now, that's clip what, number one. What Hitchens is expressing here is the old problem of the identification of a miracle. And I think his question was correctly posed. Which do you think is more probable? Now, in assessing that probability, it's important to take into account whether you have good evidence for the existence of God. 
Because if you have good evidence that there is a personal creator and designer of the universe who set the laws of nature and their boundary conditions, then there exists a being who is capable of suspending the laws of nature in the way that Hitchens describes. And it could well be that in the case of a significant religious and historical context, such as the unparalleled life and ministry and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, that the balance of probability would be that in this case, a divine miracle has occurred. And that's exactly what I would argue. Excellent. Yeah, I don't I don't have a whole lot more to add there other than to say that this kind of seems like some Humean reasoning, like David Hume's old argument against miracles. It's like no amount of testimony is going to overcome this kind of initial improbability that miracles face. And you've you've encountered or you you've interacted with with a, a lot of people on this question. Give give me like what is your uh, what's your response to that, to like the Humean well, argument against miracles? The Humean argument was formulated back in 1783 before the modern probability calculus was understood. And so Hume's argument against the probability of miracles is demonstrably mathematically fallacious because he neglects certain key elements in the probability calculus. All he considers is, what is the probability of the miracle given the general background information, the laws of nature? But what he fails to consider is the likelihood of the evidence occurring on the uh, hypothesis of a miracle compared to the likelihood of the evidence occurring on the hypothesis that the miracle did not occur. And if that ratio is great, it can easily outbalance any improbability um, of the miracle on the background information alone. Now, what I just said a moment ago would also suggest that the probability of the miracle on the background information alone can't be shown to be um, highly improbable uh, if there is a God who is capable of intervening in the universe and suspending its laws. And so I think we need to include in the background information, not just the laws of nature, but also the existence of God as established by the cosmological, teleological, moral, uh, and so forth arguments. All right, let's move on to clip number two. This one is from Ricky Gervais. Why, why should they take offense that I don't believe in their God or any other God? And I'd say to them, you know, tell me the reasons why you don't believe in all the other gods, and that's the reason I don't believe in yours. And uh, I've got nothing against people believing in God at all, you know. Um, uh, in, in fact, if, if it, you know, did make you a kinder person, if you only did good things in his name, mm -hmm. then great, you know, but there's the rub. Uh, it's when uh, I see some of these religious fundamentalists saying that um, they've told their five-year-old children that if they turn out gay, they will burn in hell. Mm. That to me is child abuse. Well, there are a number of points here. Um, he's saying that he is tolerant of people who want to be religious so long as they do not engage in behavior that injures others. And of course, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. One can similarly say we can be tolerant of atheists, uh, so long as they do not engage in behavior, such as uh, Leninist-Stalinists did in the old Soviet Union, uh, that hurt others as well. So 
the principle would be exactly the same. One correction, though, would need to be made. He says the reason he doesn't believe in um, the God of Christianity is the same reason that Christians don't believe in the gods of, say, Islam or some other religion. And that's simply not true. What he's assuming is that there is no evidence for any of these religious beliefs and that therefore they're just arbitrary. But if you have good arguments for Christian theism, such as I've offered, then it's simply not true that my reasons for disbelieving in, say, Islam are exactly the same as arguments that might be offered against Christian theism. Yeah, the only thing, uh, the only other thing I wanted to add was that this is kind of like a, a good argument for apologetics. Yeah, right, right. That we are that our religious beliefs are not just arbitrary, but that we have good reasons for what we believe, um, and good reasons for what we do not believe as well. Yeah, and I think it's also fair to say that his point does kind of apply to a good number of Christians who just haven't really thought deeply about why they believe what they believe. And so he does ha he does have something to say about that, but it's not going to apply to someone like yourself or other Christian right. apologists, other, other Christian thinkers who have spent some time looking at the evidence and then came to the conclusion that Christianity was true based on the evidence. Like, that's just not, yeah, you can't reject right. uh, Islam because you have evidence for for. Uh, well, anyways, you get the point. All right, here's, here's clip yeah, number three. And I, I just want to say as well, I don't know of any Christian parent who says to um, his child, if you are gay, then you're going to burn in hell. That's, I think, a cruel caricature. Uh, I don't know of any Christian parent who says such a thing. Yeah, that was actually a good point. My, my wife brought that up. She was like, who is telling their five-year-old kid that they're yeah. going to, to spend eternity in hell if they're gay? It's like... Christians don't do that. It's just a, a weird no. thing to say. Yeah, and it yeah. also is kind of like a caricature of, of Christian theology, right? The Bible doesn't teach that homosexuals are sent to hell. It teaches that unrepentant sinners send themselves to hell. Yeah. All right, here's, uh, here's clip number three. Don't you sometimes feel uh, sad about breaking all these myths apart? <laughs> no, no, because I, I, I think it's... Uh, some myths are, are, are deserve to be broken apart out of respect for the human intellect that um, no when you're writhing on the ground and froth is coming out of your mouth you're having an epileptic seizure you have not been invaded by the devil we got this one figured out okay I like Neil deGrasse Tyson unlike some of these other folks uh, I feel like he is a credible uh, person and good-natured as well um, he's using the word myth here in the popular sense of falsehood, not in the sense of a literary form. Uh, and I would agree with him that insofar as you equate myths and falsehoods, then we need to use reason and intellect to expose them. With respect to demon possession, um, there I'm skeptical of the claim that it's been proven that there is, is no demon possession. Uh, this is not uh, an area of my expertise, but I don't see any reason to think that demon possession is impossible and never takes place. So I'm I'm rather skeptical of that sweeping claim on his part. Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. I was I was thinking about that. Like, what what percentage of uh, of philosophers of religion say? Do you think would accept that something like demon possession is a thing? 
if you could just come up with the number. I, I've never seen anybody even talk about it. I, it's just not a topic that is much dealt with. Maybe that would be a good one to, to tackle for Christian theologians to do a little bit on this area. But certainly in things that I've read about the occult, occult practices seem to be very real and in some cases do seem to come into contact with spiritual forces that are tremendously evil and destructive. And so I would be careful about being too rash and saying that there is no such thing as demon possession, that it never occurs. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, we want to exercise humility in, in these uh, a lot of these cases. Some of them are, are difficult to explain. All right, let's move to uh, clip number four. Here we go. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man <laughs> living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these 10 things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. Well, Kevin, this isn't serious critique. This is comedy. Um, indeed, it's, it's mockery. And so he sets up a caricature, which he then makes fun of. The Christian conception of God is not a man in the sky. Um, it's a transcendent, personal creator and designer of the universe who is the locus and source of absolute moral goodness. Um, and the list of 10 things, I take it that that's a reference to the 10 commandments. And it's neither the teaching of Old Testament Judaism nor Christianity that if you break any of the Ten Commandments, God is going to send you to burn in hell uh, and to torture you. Um, rather, what Christianity is like, if I can give an analogy, is that it's like a, a condemned criminal who has been found guilty of a capital crime and sentenced to death and is on death row. And then the governor or the president, out of mercy, bestows upon him the offer of a complete pardon for his crime, which the uh, guilty person is then either free to accept or to reject. Uh, and if he rejects it, then, of course, he will fall back onto the, the just desert of the justice system, and the sentence will be carried out. So it's entirely up to us whether or not we want to accept God's loving uh, and gracious pardon for our wrongdoing or whether we choose to reject his love and forgiveness. Yeah, I was going to, uh, well, before I add to that, I wanted to just point out that you called me Kevin instead of Cameron, I think oh. out of habit. <laughs> uh, 
Yes, that's from with Kevin Harris. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. Uh, I, I wanted to point out that you're you're familiar with this guy, Jerry Walls. He's been on our show before. Yeah. He's also been on our podcast, and we did an episode that was completely devoted to hell and whether or not that was inconsistent with an all-loving God. So if you want to get more on that and some more sophisticated thinking, then uh, then check out our podcast with Jerry Walls on whether or not hell is inconsistent with an all-loving God. All right, here's clip number five. God that our neighbors believe in is essentially an invisible person. He's a creator deity who created the universe to have a relationship with one species of primate. Lucky us. <laughs> and and he, he's, got, he's got galaxy upon galaxy to attend to, but he's especially concerned with what we do, and, and he's especially concerned with what we do while naked. <laughs> now, it's no part of Christian theism to say that the entire universe was created for homo sapiens on this planet. For all we know, there could be intelligent life forms scattered throughout the universe. And if there are, I believe that God loves them and is concerned about them just as much as he is about us. And when you think about the point that Harris is making, it's very peculiar. Doesn't he think that sexual ethics are important? That it's important whether we treat, for example, women with respect or as mere objects? Does he think that it, rape is morally indifferent? If there is a loving God who created us, shouldn't he be concerned about how we behave towards one another, and especially with regard to sexual ethics? I would think a God who was indifferent to that would not be uh, a, a good God. So apart from the sort of uh, good comedic timing that he has, I, I don't see anything in what his remarks, uh, uh, in his remarks that was uh, substantive or important. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, he, he did have good comedic timing. Got to give him that. He did. But I, I think that... You can tell it's rehearsed, you know. You can just <laughs> tell. It's, this, these lines are practiced to get a yeah, good I was, laugh. I was going to say that everybody has to, or should be con uh, concerned with what we do naked, right? You got to be concerned about trafficking, sex trafficking, and child pornography, and and cases of rape. Like everybody should be concerned about those issues. Now, here's here's another thing. I I reached out to a Bible student friend of mine, and I asked him what percentage of prohibitions in the Bible are related to to sex. And mm. he he looked it up. He spent a couple hours doing doing some uh, some you know, research, it was, it wasn't completely thorough. He, he may actually do some more. It, it kind of piqued his interest. But the point is, is that at the end of his research, he found that there was only about one to 5% of the prohibitions in the Bible have to do with sexuality or sex, hmm. which That's is interesting. Really I, rather surprising when you think how human sexuality is so enormous an influence upon human behavior and our comportment with one another as human beings. I would think this would be a major, major part of our interactions with each other. Um, but that's that's fascinating that, in fact, most of the biblical prohibitions have nothing to do with sex. Yeah, they do have, they do, have to do with what you do with your body, but not necessarily what you do while yes. you're naked. Um, yes, and with loving your neighbor as yourself and so forth. Yeah, and I was going to say that I think that his comment and the fact that the audience laughed and everything, I, I think this kind of actually 
speaks more about Sam Harris and culture than it does about Christianity. How so? Well, I, I think that people, the, the fact that they, they were laughing at it sort of suggests that they, it's, it's more of a focus, you know, these questions of what we do with our bodies. And that's what culture sort of focuses on homosexuality oh, yeah. and, and these, these other questions. I think more people, you know, um, uh, circumcision, you know, these questions of circumcision, people focus on these, these particular things and Christians, I think do that too. We focus on, you know, certain things that interest us or don't interest us. And we kind of ignore all of the other prohibitions. So I think it kind of sheds more light on the psychology of Sam Harris than it does mm. on, on Christianity. All right. Here's yeah. uh, here's clip number six. Just because they're offended by someone being gay, it doesn't mean they're right. You know, it's a strange thing that, because uh, that, that, um, gay, being gay is a choice. No, being gay isn't a choice. You know, I want to go, well, go, go, you try it then. Mm. If it's a choice, have a go. <laughs> See how much you like it, you know. Well, the implication here, I take it, is that if having a homosexual orientation is not a choice, if this is somehow either biologically based or it's ingrained into you by your upbringing so that involuntarily you have such an orientation, that therefore you are morally free to act out on that orientation. And that seems to me to be an extraordinarily superficial and even dangerous view of ethics. Uh, imagine, for example, that pedophilia was not a choice, but had a biological base or was ingrained into someone by uh, child abuse as a young uh, youngster. Would that person therefore be free to simply act out on that orientation and do as he wills? I don't think we'd say that at all. So the fact that something isn't a choice in no way warrants or sanctions ethically uh, acting out on whatever those desires or proclivities might be. I think at this point, it might be good to remind the listeners that again, we haven't really seen one argument again or for atheism mm. in this entire thing. Like that last clip was, I played that for my wife and she was like, why is this even in a video titled best yeah. arguments for atheism? It's just bizarre. It's really it, bizarre. It is astonishing. And I think it shows clearly the superficiality of much of pop atheism in our culture. Uh, it, it's comedic, it's ridicule and mockery but there are not substantive reasons for what they believe. Right. And uh, with that, let's move on to clip number seven. Do you give people who make this case that that was the beginning and that there had to be something that provoked the beginning, do you give them an A at least for trying to reconcile faith and reason? Um, I don't think they're reconcilable. What do you mean? Well, well so let me say that differently. All efforts that have been invested by brilliant people of the past have failed at that exercise. They just fail. And so I don't, I, I don't, the track record is so poor that going forward I have essentially zero confidence, near zero confidence, that there will be fruitful things to emerge 
from the effort to reconcile them. Before you respond, what do you think the probability is that he's read where the conflict really lies by Alvin Plantinga? <laughs> Zero. I, I mean, it's very, very clear that Dr. Tyson is not well read in this area. He, he's just um, sharing his opinion. And that's evident in the way the question is framed. Faith and reason, are they reconcilable? Those are such general terms as to be meaningless. What in the world is even meant by faith and reason? And yet he thinks they're irreconcilable. Now, what he goes on to talk about is the opening chapter of Genesis. That is apparently what he thinks he means by faith, and that all efforts to reconcile that um, with science have failed. Now, there's a lot to be said about this. As the interviewer suggested, the idea that the universe had a beginning at some point in the finite past and was created by God, as Genesis declares, is fully reconcilable with modern astrophysical cosmology, which also posits an absolute origin to the universe about 13.8 billion years ago. Also, the fine-tuning of the universe is consistent with the biblical affirmation that it's God who is the ultimate creator of the universe and all of its biological life forms. Um, the extraordinary applicability of mathematics that we've talked about on previous Capturing Christianities is also completely reconcilable and compatible with um, a religious perspective on creation, such as you have in Genesis 1. So it's demonstrably false that faith and modern science cannot be reconciled, as the way Dr. Tyson says. Now, with respect to the Genesis account, it's very important to understand that this is not offering a natural account of the origin of the world. This is an account that uh, works with the presuppositions of the culture and the assumptions that were made by those to whom it was written to make the theological point that the stars and the sun and the moon, the animals, the things in the world are not deities, as was believed in ancient Mesopotamia, but rather these are just ordinary, natural things which the transcendent God has made. And that central theological point uh, is not dependent upon the sort of worldview assumptions that may be taken for granted in this chapter. It's not a chapter about uh, cosmology or biology. It's a chapter about how God is the source of the things in the natural world, and that therefore they are not to be worshipped. We have a couple minutes. Why don't we talk for uh, for just a couple minutes about the evolutionary argument against naturalism and why Plantinga thinks that science is uh, ultimately in conflict with naturalism as opposed to theism. Yes, this is a very subtle argument that Plantinga has defended uh, in great depth, and it, it's basically this. If naturalism is true, then our cognitive faculties have been selected for survival value, not for truth. 
it's ultimately irrelevant whether or not our beliefs are true. What matters is only if they are beneficial in the struggle for survival. And so what Plantinga says is that if naturalism is true, we can have no confidence in the reliability of our cognitive faculties. But if that's the case, then we can have no confidence in the truth of naturalism because the belief in naturalism was formed by those very cognitive faculties which are shown to be unreliable if naturalism is true. So there is a kind of vicious circularity here, a kind of self-referential incoherence that is inescapable on a naturalistic worldview because naturalism will undermine the reliability of the very cognitive faculties that were used to establish naturalism. Therefore, naturalism one... cannot be rationally affirmed. Yeah, and this uh, this argument is actually explicated a whole lot more in depth in the book that I mentioned at the very beginning of the response to this clip, which was Where the Conflict Really Lies by Alvin Plantinga. Highly recommend picking up that book and giving it a watch. So we're at the halfway point. I want to mention real quick that we're in the middle of doing 12 apologetics courses for beginners. So if you're interested in apologetics and uh, maybe you're just getting into it, you're just getting started, and you'd like to, to find a place to get started, we're, we're doing 12 courses. These are the courses we have so far. I'll just leave them up on the screen. You can pause it and take a look at them. The ones with the check marks are ones that we've already completed. And so we're about halfway through. We've got six more and all of them will be available on patreon.com slash capturing Christianity. I'll put it right here. It's also linked in the description of this video. You can access all 12 courses for $10 a month of support uh, for, our, for this ministry. If you've been enjoying the content, you want to support the ministry, make sure that it continues to, to operate and everything, then this is the way to do it. So patreon.com slash capturing Christianity. All right. With that said, let's move on to clip number eight. Here we go. And for those of you who look to the Bible for moral uh, lessons and literary qualities, I might suggest a couple of other stories for you. Uh, you might want to look at the Three Little Pigs. That's a good one. That's a nice, happy ending. I'm sure you'll like that. Then there's Little Red Riding Hood, although it does have that X-rated part where the big bad wolf actually eats the grandmother, which I didn't care for, by the way. And finally, I've often always drawn a great deal of moral comfort from Humpty Dumpty. The part I like the best, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's because there is no Humpty Dumpty and there is no God. Well, that's really stupid, isn't it, to compare <laughs> Humpty Dumpty to God. In all the nursery rhyme books I've seen, the reason Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again is because he's an egg and falls and shatters, and so they can't reassemble him. This just has nothing to do with theism or Christianity. It's just silly. Yeah, I, there's there's not really much else to say, other than don't <laughs> no. don't yeah don't simply go to the Bible because it has nice moral principles. Go to the Bible because it's true. Mm. Right. I mean that's 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 what we should be doing in this in this anyways. All right, here's, uh, here's clip number nine. Many people claim to find it impossible to believe or to imagine that they won't exist after death. Um, just try it for a second. I mean, you, you imagine that everyone in Paris right now is getting along fine without all of us. I mean, none of us are in Paris. We are really, really materially absent 
from whatever is going on in every other city on this planet right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you were absent for all of human history before your birth. Uh, the idea that you, that you simply can't imagine not existing after death is really kind of a, just for lack of trying, I think. Well, I'm baffled at this one. This is supposed to be an argument for atheism? Um, I've never I think, met I think this guy just kind of wanted to, to put together some clips that he liked of like, you know, people, atheists saying things that he liked. I don't know. Yeah, or comedic again. I've never met anyone, uh, Cameron, in my life who has difficulty believing that they will die and no longer exist. Uh, I've never met anybody who thinks that that's unimaginable, that they would not exist after they die. On the contrary, they would need good grounds for thinking that they will continue to exist after their death. What I would say in response to Harris is people who think that they cannot continue to exist after they die are the ones who haven't been trying very hard. They're the ones who lack imagination. Those who think that when you die, it's lights out and that you don't continue to exist. That uh, may be a lack of trying uh, in its own right. Well, what do you think about the evidence for near-death experiences? Dr. Gary Habermas has mm, put a whole lot yeah. of effort in, into studying those cases. What do you make of, of the evidence? Oh, J.P. Moreland as well. I, what do you make yeah, of all of that? J.P. Moreland, my colleague, I'm simply not qualified to have an opinion on that. I'm intrigued by them, um, but I find some of them disquieting. For example, I don't know if you remember some years ago, this little Colin Burpo, I think, was his name, claimed to go to heaven and wrote a very vivid description of what it was like there. And he saw his little sister, whom he didn't even know he had. She had died years earlier as an infant, saw his grandfather, but he also saw comic book monsters that he was familiar with. And it seemed to me that a lot of that was just mental projections on the part of a little boy, uh, rather than veridical visions of, of, of heaven, which in one sense doesn't even exist yet, because when we die, we go into an intermediate state, according to the scriptures, and will not have bodies until the resurrection at the return of Christ. So I, I don't know what to make of these, and I've never cared to devote time to studying them. All right, with that, let's move on to clip number 10. Here we go. If someone said, we're banning religion, I'd march to not have it banned, because it's your right to believe what you want, mm. um, and it's your right to be wrong, mm. and I'll fight for that right. Great, that's wonderful. That's, you know, that's what tolerance really is. I may disagree with what you say, but I will fight to the death to defend your right to say it. And I applaud him for understanding the correct meaning of toleration in a civil society. Yeah, well, what do you think about this? Because, I mean, talk of rights seems like it might presuppose morality or, or at least moral knowledge. And moral knowledge, on the other hand, kind of conflicts with atheism. So in, in one sense, this, this might be an argument for theism as opposed to, uh, to atheism. Ha, huh, that's, a, that's a clever response, Cameron. Um, perhaps the best thing that he might say in response to that would be that he's talking about political rights, 
rather than moral rights. Perhaps as an atheist, he would recognize that you have no moral rights to anything, but that in a pluralistic society governed by the U.S. Constitution or in Great Britain, you have the political right to freedom of religion. And well, if you're uh, that's, play... certain, that certainly is a valuable right that is under great pressure today, not from the right, but from the left. Uh, people who want to suppress that freedom of religious expression. So this is something we need to applaud and uh, agree upon. Yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it at there. I was going to make another joke, but here we go. Let's move on. Clip oh, number sorry. 11. We're, we're, we're uh, going pretty quickly through these, so that's great. Here we go. They're not if very you knew nothing about science, <laughs> and you read, say, the Bible, the Old Testament, which in Genesis is an account of nature. That's, that's what that is. And I said to you, give me your description of the natural world based only on this. You would say the world was created in six days and that stars are just little points of light, much lesser than the sun. And in fact, they can fall out of the sky, right? Because that's what happens during, during the um, revelation. One of the signs that yeah. the second coming is that the stars will fall out of the sky and land on Earth. So it's even right that means you don't know what those things are. Everybody who tried to make proclamations about the physical universe based on Bible passages got the wrong answer. So what happened was when science discovers things and you want to stay religious or you want to continue to believe that the Bible is, is unerring, what you would do is you would say, well, let me go back to the Bible and reinterpret it. Then you'd say things like, oh, they didn't really mean that literally. They meant that figuratively. There's so much to say about this. Uh, for one thing, notice the confusion between Genesis 1 and the book of Revelation. Genesis 1 says nothing about the stars falling from the sky. That's from uh, a work of apocalyptic literature employing lots of symbolism. Um, and, and Hundreds of years later. Yeah, right. So he's just confused there. Now, when you get to Genesis 1, as I said... The purpose of Genesis 1 is not to give an account of nature. It is not um, a science book. The purpose of Genesis 1 is to show that the things that exist in the world are just creatures rather than deities to be worshipped and served, that God is the transcendent creator and designer of everything that exists. And honestly... If you read Genesis 1, it really gives you a very logical order of creation, beginning with uh, darkness uh, and then a primordial sea, the emergence of dry land, uh, and then uh, vegetation and animals, and finally man as the very last, the crown of creation on earth. It's, it, it's not grossly unscientific in the way many Mesopotamian myths were. It's quite astonishing. Um, but in any case, I, I don't think that taking the passage non-literally is a later um, imposition, as Neil deGrasse Tyson says. I believe, Cameron, that there are indications in the text itself that the author did not intend for these to be taken as six consecutive 24-hour days. For example, when it says on the uh, third day that God created the vegetation, 
It says, let the earth bring forth vegetation, fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, and vegetation bearing seed after its kind. And it was so the earth brought forth fruit trees bearing fruit and so forth. Now, every ancient Israelite knows how long it takes for, say, a date palm to spring up out of the ground and grow into a tree and finally bear dates. Uh, for this to happen within 24 hours, he would have to be imagining something like a, a time-lapse film being run on fast forward so that the tree would pop up out of the ground, grow into a, a huge tree and pop out the fruit on it all of a sudden within a short amount of time. And I don't think that's what the author of Genesis had in mind. Also notice on day two, on that day, the primordial ocean drains away and the dry land emerges. Now, the author of Genesis would have known that this can't happen within 24 hours. Uh, the, to have a primordial sea drain into lakes and rivers and ponds and so forth would take a long time. And that's not just my speculation. When you go over to Genesis 8 and you read the account of Noah and the, the flood, after the flood returns the earth to this primordial sea covering the land, how long does it take for the waters to drain away and for the, nine, uh, the dry land to emerge? Well, in the case of the flood, it's 150 days before the dry land appears. So right in the Genesis narrative itself, you have indications that the author is not speaking here of six 24-hour consecutive days, um, but rather this is an account that employs figurative uh, and metaphorical imagery to communicate the theological truth that God is the creator of everything and is alone to be worshipped, not the finite creatures in the world. One of the things that you do in your work is you talk about the fact that the, the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo has been around for a long time, long before we had any evidence of the Big Bang or anything. And so that might be a case where science confirms what the Bible has taught for a long time. That's one point. Another point is that yes. I believe it's Augustine, or yeah, Augustine, who believed back in the fourth century that the the first uh, six days were not consecutive 24-hour periods. And so there's already this impetus not to, to take these as literal 24-hour days all the way back then. Yes, and, and that was uh, 1,500 years before Darwin came on the scene. But as I say, even more importantly, I'm not going to turn to Augustine or Oregon or any church father for my interpretation of Genesis 1. I want to look at the chapter itself. And I think when you do that, you have indications in Genesis itself that this is not intended to be taken as six literal consecutive 24-hour days. All right, with that, here is clip number 12. I say, fine, pray for anything you want. Pray for anything. But what about the divine plan? Remember that? The divine plan. Long time ago, God made a divine plan. Gave it a lot of thought, decided it was a good plan, put it into practice. And for billions and billions of years, the divine plan has been doing just fine. Now you come along and pray for something. Well, suppose the thing you want isn't in God's divine plan. What do you want him to do? Change his plan? Just for you? 
Doesn't it seem a little arrogant? It's a divine plan. What's the use of being God if every rundown schmuck with a $2 prayer book can come along and f*** your plan? <laughs> and here's something else, another problem you might have. Suppose your prayers aren't answered. What do you say? Well, it's God's will. Thy will be done. Fine. But if it's God's will and he's going to do what he wants to anyway, why bother praying in the first place? <laughs> Seems like a big waste of time to me. Now here, Cameron, I think a Molinist perspective on prayer can be very helpful in understanding this. As the uh, comic said, God put a lot of thought into this divine plan. And I believe that one of the things that he took into consideration was how people would pray in the future. And he factored that into his divine plan when he made it. So that God's plan already factors in our prayers and can take account of them. So what that means is that while our prayers do not change God's plan, they do affect God's plan. They help to determine what God's plan is, and that alone gives good reason to pray. Uh, I have two two more things on that one. So petitionary prayer is just one type of prayer. And I think the atheist, when they try to raise objections to, to Christianity, prayer in particular, they like to point to one type of prayer, petitionary prayer, and say that prayer is therefore pointless because this one type of prayer, maybe there's not a whole lot of evidence that it works or, or whatever they think it is. And I just wanted to point out that there are many types of prayer. There's prayers of gratitude, prayers of adoration, prayers of confession, prayers of lamentation, and there's even prayers of silence. Some people, some, some people pray in the form of just being silent and sort of listening to God. And uh, if you want to learn more about this objection and how philosophers currently respond to it, see my interview with Dr. Scott Davison. I interviewed him. The title of that interview is If God Knows the Future, Why Pray? And that's actually linked in the description of this video if that interests you. So unless you have any thoughts, we can move on. Uh, well, I had thoughts, but I've shared them already. Great. All right. Here's uh, clip number 13, which is actually from Sam Harris in his debate with you on the moral argument. Here we go. Yeah. Hey, just, th just think about the Muslims at this moment who are blowing themselves up, okay, convinced that they are agents of God's will. There is absolutely nothing that Dr. Craig can, can say against their behavior in moral terms, apart from his own faith-based claim that they're praying to the wrong God. Okay, if they had the right God, what they were doing would be good on divine command theory. Now, I'm obviously not saying that all the Dr. Craig or all religious people are psychopaths and psychotics, but this to me is the, is the true horror of religion. Okay, it allows perfectly decent and sane people to believe by the billions what only lunatics could believe on their own. Okay, if you wake up tomorrow morning thinking that saying a few Latin words over your pancakes is going to turn them into the body of Elvis Presley, okay, you have lost your mind. But if you think more or less the same thing about a cracker and the body of Jesus, you're just a Catholic. Now, here again, I think atheists so often fail to realize that what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. The same point applies to Harris's view. Um, on the naturalistic view, uh, on atheism, Plausibly, there are no objective moral values and duties, 
And therefore, millions and millions of people can engage in horrible and despotic acts, such as we saw in Marxist-Leninism or in Nazism in National Socialist Germany. And the same question could be posed of Harris. He thinks that the basis objective moral values is the flourishing of sentient life. Well, I could say, but what if the flourishing of sentient life were not the basis for objective moral values? Then what? Then you would have nothing to say other than your faith-based claim that the flourishing of sentient life is the basis of moral values. It's, it's the same thing that he accuses me of. Now, what I would say with regard to the Muslim is that the Muslim is worshiping a God who doesn't exist. There is no such person as Allah as described in the Quran. Uh, and therefore, we can be grateful that uh, moral values and duties are not determined by uh, Allah. Uh, rather, moral values are rooted in the essential nature of God himself, which is necessarily good, um, is not a result of human convention or arbitrary decision, and that uh, his commands to us reflect his necessarily good moral nature. So I think this provides a very firm, non-arbitrary, non-conventional basis for objective moral values and duties, something that I do not think atheism can do. I was going to talk a little bit more, but I'll just mention this. So I, I hosted a debate or discussion between Matt Flanagan and Joshua Thibodeau on the Euthyphro dilemma, which kind of touches on some of the issues, at least in the first part of this clip that Sam Harris was touching on. It's like these other religions, they believe these things. And if, if that was true, these would be really horrible things. But on divine command theory, this this theory of ethics, it would seem to follow that these horrible things are therefore moral to do. And that just seems really weird. It's a bad, it's sort of an argument against divine command theory. So if you want to to hear a dialogue about some of those objections, check out that dialogue that I hosted. Did you want to say something on that? Not further. I think what oh, okay, I've I heard you take said, a breath. Uh, pertain, pertains to the point. Okay. Yeah. So um, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things to that that Matt Flanagan in that debate points out. So I just uh, recommend that you check that out. I did want to say something else though about the the end of it. He says that that you know, religion can make otherwise sane people believe insane things. And I want to say that science can make otherwise smart people believe some insane things, quote unquote, insane things. And all that we mean by that is that there are some claims that have a very low prior probability. Just on the face of it, they seem really weird. Okay. Take a scientific example. Atomic theory implies that most of the things that we interact with are made up mostly of empty space. That seems like an insane thing to believe until you start to gather evidence for atomic theory. In quantum mechanics, we, there's a thing called quantum entanglement, where two different particles, even uh, we have a lot of evidence now that this happens across vast dis uh, distances, where two particles can, it can start to do some of the same things faster than the speed of light. There's this sort of spooky action at a distance, according to, uh, that's what I, Albert Einstein said about it. And so we, there's things that we discover in science that just seem wacky on the face of it, but really what matters and this is the same thing when it comes to Christianity religion, really what matters is not the prior probability of something, but the evidence for it and whether or not we have good reasons to think that thing is true in the long run. Yes. Key to Harris's statement or argument, uh, and the audience may have missed this, was the word faith-based. He characterized 
the theistic view as faith-based, which suggests there isn't any evidence for it. But as you say, Cameron, if we have good evidence for the existence of God and for grounding moral values in God, um, then you escape his criticism. Uh, on the contrary, I think it's Harris's view that is faith-based. I can't think of any reason on a naturalistic, atheistic view for thinking that the flourishing of sentient life is somehow morally valuable. All right, let's get to the last clip for today, and then we're going to close out the live stream. Here we go. Clip number 14 featuring everyone's favorite atheist, Richard Dawkins. Probably going to be the most simplest one for you to answer, but what if you're wrong? Well, what if I'm wrong? I mean, anybody could be wrong. We could all be wrong about the flying spaghetti monster and the pink unicorn and the flying teapot. Um, you happen to have been brought up, I would presume, in the Christian faith. You know what it's like not to believe in a particular faith because you're not a Muslim, you're not a Hindu. Why aren't you a Hindu? Because you happen to have been brought up in America, not in India. If you'd been brought up in, Indo in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you were brought up in, in um, Denmark in the time of the Vikings, you'd be believing in Wotan and Thor. If you were brought up in, in classical Greece, you'd be believing in, in Zeus. If you were brought up in Central Africa, you'd be believing in the great juju up the mountain. I mean, there's no particular reason to pick on the Judeo-Christian God in which by the sheerest accident you happen to have been brought up and, and ask me the question, what if I'm wrong? What if you're wrong about the great juju at the bottom of the sea? Now, it was very obvious to me that Richard Dawkins was thinking on the fly there that he was taken off guard and the question morphed from the question the girl asked to a question about religious pluralism. Um, what the girl was, I think, trying to express, Cameron, was Pascal's wager, so that she would be very happy with the question posed by Dawkins at the end, what if you were wrong? And she would say that when I estimate the risk rewards involved, the risk of being wrong is much, much greater for the atheist than it is for the theist. Because if the atheist is wrong, he risks forfeiting eternal happiness and eternal life. Whereas if the theist is wrong, uh, all he forfeits is the pleasures of sin during this lifetime. So that um, the risks of being wrong, she's arguing, are much, much greater for the atheist, and that should give the atheist significant pause, I think, before confidently expounding his worldview. Now, what Dawkins does, as I say, is to try to shift the question to the question of religious pluralism that says that the beliefs that a person typically holds are the beliefs of the culture in which he was raised. Well, of course, that's true sociologically, but so what? That doesn't prove that therefore your views are false. To think that it does is to commit the genetic fallacy, which is trying to invalidate a point of view by showing how the person came to hold it. And that is a logical fallacy. If somebody says, well, the only reason that you believe that democracy is the best form of government is because you were raised in 20th century America, well, that might be true, but that doesn't prove that your belief 
is therefore false. Moreover, the argument is, again, it's another one of these sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Uh, if Richard Dawkins had been raised in Pakistan, he would likely be a theist. He'd likely be a Muslim. Does that therefore mean that his belief in atheism is unjustified and therefore false? Well, obviously not. So the very argument that he's using against uh, theism, namely its cultural relativity, uh, bounces back on him and would make his own uh, atheistic beliefs unjustified and false. I have uh, just two things to to add there, and, and I don't have anything to add to what you already said. Just to just to say that I've actually interviewed a philosopher, Thomas Bogardus, about the "if you had been born elsewhere" objection to theistic or Christian belief, and that interview is one of my favorites. It's actually one of the lesser viewed for some reason, but it's just it's one of my favorites. He goes very deep into this objection. He provides responses from Alvin Plantinga, who gives counterexamples, like you know, if you had been born in Spain, you wouldn't believe that you were born in the U.S but that doesn't really undermine your belief that you're born in the U.S. <laughs> so there's easy counterexamples you can find to this claim. And you, he modifies it in certain ways to try to get a, around some of these objections. Super fascinating interview. Definitely recommend to go check Good. that out. Um, and then the last one is that there's a great book on Pascal's Wager by uh, a guy named Michael Rota. And I've interviewed him on my mm -hmm. podcast, not on the YouTube channel yet. Maybe we'll, we'll have him on. But the book itself is amazing. He updates Pascal's Wager to, uh, to address some of the common objections that you see to it, like the many gods objection, how there's different religions, yeah. how do we account for all of that? And so that book, highly, highly recommend. It comes in three different sections. The book is split up into three sections. All of the sections are, are terrific. It's an amazing book. Pick it up and read it today. That's all we have. So thanks, Dr. Craig, for coming on to uh, to do this video. I hope that it was, you know, like we said, maybe it's, it's worth pointing out one more time that these clips that we played do not represent the best atheist arguments that professional yeah. philosophers give. These represent the best atheist arguments that one random YouTuber labeled as the best atheist arguments, which really in the end don't really amount to much. But no. hopefully you guys have seen that it's... Yeah, it's one of the reasons why we did this video in the first place is because it has that video had 3 million views. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. All right, well, is there anything that you'd like to leave the audience with? Well, just to say that um, our viewers need to be very critical uh, in what they see on the internet. This kind of stuff is rampant uh, on YouTube and social media. And I just would hope that people would think more deeply about these subjects rather than allowing themselves to be swayed by ridicule, mockery and comedy rather than serious thought, because these are deep questions um, about the most important issues in life, and they deserve to be taken seriously. Amen. And with that, we'll leave it at that. And thank you guys for watching. Make sure to subscribe to the channel, turn on the little bell to get notifications when we post new videos. And remember, Christianity is true. See you guys later. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.